Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello again. It's John Marco here off of the Driven Chat podcast, and I'm still sat in a room with Amy Shaw and new voice, Amber Young. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that hello. Great. Hello. I pitched hello. <laughs> it's a bit like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, which is like, hello. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, all the accents and all the critics are going to come out as well. No, the critics don't matter. Sorry. (laughs) So here we are again, uh, another episode on this weird Christmassy week, if you're listening in real time. If you're not listening in real time, then it doesn't matter. Uh, But yes, this is the second bonus episode that you're getting over the Christmas period, which is a Meet Your Hosts episode, where we, as you have heard previously, most likely, uh, you've had a little deep dive with... Amy Shaw, led by Amber, and today it's going to be a little deep dive with me, Oof! an opportunity to learn a bit more about the hosts that you hear every week. Seems a bit intrusive and self-indulgent me introducing myself in this podcast, so I'm going to shut up now and let Amber and Amy do the talking. I'm I'm intrigued to listen to this, John Marker, because we've had many, uh, yeah, many many chats in cars of, mm. of long journeys, and I think I do know a lot about you. But I feel that this is going to teach me something about you as well. Mm. This is the thing. I mean, to be honest, John, I speak to you most days. Mm. Amy, not as much. I would like to speak to you most days, <laughs> and I will <laughs> in 2023. But you know, even in that chat, I think there's there's so much I didn't know about you mm. that. I probably never even would have thought about, and to be honest, it was thoroughly 
really enjoyable to learn, to be honest. Wow. Do you let the listeners know anything that uh, that you've never let anybody else know before? Uh, there's a lot that the listeners won't know. Oh. Having listened to just the Driven Chat podcast, there are a couple of interviews that I've done elsewhere where I mentioned a few of these bits and pieces, but this is definitely the first time that our dear listener is going to be hearing um, the vast majority of my bizarre life story as to what's led me here. Exclusively. <laughs> Exclusively. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, you might think it's complete tosh. So uh, if you, you know, I won't be offended if you turn it off. But um, yeah, we thought it was a fun idea. And uh, we will be doing one with Rachel as well. In fact, we planned to record one with Rachel this week. But uh, the week that we're recording, in fact, we're recording this little intro on Christmas Eve Eve. And um, the trains are all broken and the country's broken and everything's broken and ev- everybody's gone on strike, everyone now. So um, nothing's working. So we will bring you a Rachel episode as well, but that's probably not going to be recorded until beginning of Jan and then we'll put that out at some point as another little bonus. But yeah, here we are. Um, I'm going to try and stop talking because, again, it just sounds like I'm <laughs> you, you can bigging tell, up myself. You, you can it's tell you feel awkward about I this, do, don't you? I, do. <laughs> I genuinely am struggling with this whole concept of having a podcast about me. And this is the thing. People, I mean, all of our listeners, they hear you guys all the time. And actually, why shouldn't we know more? Why shouldn't we know the foundations? Yeah. Indeed. John Marker, give it a whirl. Introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Marker, and this is John Marker. <laughs> uh, yeah, strange, isn't it? Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Anyway, so uh, yeah, enjoy. I hope you've enjoyed Amy's. I hope you enjoy this one. I hope you've enjoyed... Uh, the Christmassy content. Uh, don't forget as well, there's plenty more to see over on the website. If you're a bit bored over the Christmas period and you want to have a read of some articles, have a watch of some videos, loads to see at drivenchat.com. So go and have a look at that. Uh, otherwise, normality will resume as of next week where we'll be bringing you an episode with James Martin, the chef, uh, where it's a lot easier because I can be an interviewer and he can be an interviewee. That's how I like it to be. <laughs> but we will revisit and find out all the dark, dark secrets yes. from Mr. Marker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say to John Marker, I know the story about the goat, and I think that one day needs to be said. Oh, that's... Oh. Uh... <laughs> I don't know this one yet. Thank you, Amy. We'll no. leave that for a future no. podcast. God, there's a, there's a... Teaser. There's a teaser. Um, God, I'm just going to let people's imaginations run wild with that. I'm not even going to tell you if it's an animal or not. Uh, yeah. There we are. Um, I don't know if that will ever make it onto a podcast. <laughs> it was all legal and above board. I can't, I can't stress that. Um, anyway, here we go. Uh, I will hand over the reins to Amber Young to present a podcast featuring me. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. We are now recording, Mr. Markar. Aha. Uh-huh. I'm here. Hello, you. Hello, you. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. It's it's warmed up. It was freezing cold. Uh, Christmas looked like it was going to be a big ice box, but now it looks like it might be a bit warmer. So, although I was hoping for maybe for a bit of a white Christmas, but well, I think we'll everybody see. is at the moment. But it's it's the how many layers are we supposed to wear at this point mm. that, that everybody gets a little bit confused about. I think that's true. That is true. Today, we're actually going to interview Mr. Markar, the face behind everything, the face Ooh. behind Driven. Wow. Who is he? What do we know about him? What are the dark secrets behind Mr. Markar? <laughs> I'm joking. We're actually going to keep it super professional. Mm. Maybe a little bit personal. We'll see how we go yeah, at this point. You know, his watch is off, his shoes are off, so we'll see what happens. Very comfortable right now. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. That's how it should be. But... 
for you listeners, if you've ever had that moment where you need to almost reignite that passion, that interest, find your inspiration again, whatever it may be, hopefully this podcast might do that for you. So we're actually going to find out how the hell Mr. Marker got to what he's doing now, (laughs) (laughs) where that came from. So if you're happy to start, Mr. Marker. I, I can have a go. I mean, yeah. Um, what would you like to know? I, I guess the, the the answer is I don't know. I don't know how I got here. I I, I am here. Um, but uh, yeah, there hasn't been much of a plan. It's just kind of all happened. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I suppose what we'll start with is what did you want to be when you grew up? Ooh, there's a very <laughs> good question. Let's start there. Uh, I guess it depends what you're asking, which version of me you're asking. Because I think if you're asking like five-year-old me, it was probably something relating to uh, policeman, fireman, racing driver, or a, a combination of all three, which I probably didn't find out until a few years later that, that that's not really a thing. Um, so uh, I don't know. I don't think I ever had like a dream job, and I still don't think I necessarily do have a dream job. I I learnt from a very young age that I clearly had a bizarre obsession with cars, so I think there was always destined to be something related to cars. Um, whether that was a mechanic or a designer or a driver of some variety, I'm not really sure. But I, the only, I guess, the first memory I have as a thinking seriously about a job in automotive mm-hmm. would have been to thinking along the lines of being a mechanic. My father was a mechanic from as far back as I can remember. He he ran workshops. He still to this day works in the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. Um, he just refuses to retire. Bless him. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And I, yeah, I, I guess I remember having a conversation with my dad, maybe kind of mid-teenage years, saying, I think maybe I'm going to go into mechanics because I like the idea of fixing things. I was always very obsessed as a small child with taking things apart and finding out how things worked and then putting them back together again. Sometimes not very well, but that was the the, the general premise. I wanted to find out and have an understanding of how things worked, mm-hmm. uh, which I still do to this day. And I thought um, that that was the that that seemed to be a natural progression for me. Dad was a mechanic. Yeah. Um, I have an interest in cars. That's what I'm going to do. And to my surprise, when asking my dad or telling my dad, I should say, uh, that's that was my plan. He absolutely begged me not to. He really? Said, yeah. Yeah. He he at that time. So we're talking now, probably early early to mid two thousand, so two thousand five, six, seven. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, around that sort of time. He was fairly convinced that the automotive world, from a mechanics point of view, was going to become a very difficult place because, of course, everything was going a bit more uh, technological in the way of electronic systems, ECUs. Mm-hmm. You were no longer fixing cars necessarily with just spanners and tools. You were fixing cars with laptops and programs. You needed specialist programs to get into specialist cars. And as far as Dad was concerned, he thought perhaps a little bit ahead of himself, maybe a, a, a bit far in advance Mm -hmm. he thought that that was what it was going to be and it wasn't going to be tuning carburettors and um, honing in power in engines like he'd been used to in his early years so uh, yeah he said I will support you in any profession you choose if you want to be a nurse go and be a nurse if you want to be a pilot go and be a pilot but please don't be a mechanic and the compromise that we came to uh, was that he agreed we'd buy a car together a classic mini which we did that was going to be my first car and it was my first car it's a pretty good compromise I think so (laughs) Um, and he said, you know, anything you want to learn about mechanics, we'll learn together. We'll we'll get a project car, so we'll get one that needs a bit of work, a bit of love. And um, 
that's what we'll do. We'll work on that together. I'll teach you all you need to know about mechanics and all you want to know about mechanics. And that way, and again, I, I'm really, very, very thankful to him for this, mechanics for me became an enjoyable hobby rather than a job. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend of mine, very similar age, both of us in the same chapter of our lives where we were deciding what we wanted to do. He, Will, to give him a name, Will went off to be a mechanic uh, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. And the difference was I was coming home from my first jobs ready to tinker on my car and the last thing that Will wanted to do when he came home from work as a mechanic was tinker on his car. Yeah. Um, so that was at that point I realised, ah, yeah, okay, I see what Dad was getting at here. It is more fun to do the fun stuff for fun rather than the profession. So, yeah. So that okay. I, that was a very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. But, no, uh, no, no. That's perfect. I think uh, that, that was probably it. So, yeah. But beyond okay. that, I never really had a plan. And I maybe still don't. Okay. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> My question here is, I suppose, delving back into that a little bit. How much do you think your dad's perspective of, you know, where you should go, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, hmm. actually influenced your almost future planning or thought process? Quite a lot, actually. Very, very good question. Quite a lot, but perhaps not in the way that people would expect. Um, my dad and I, we are remarkably similar people in certain aspects mm. and polar opposites in others. And I think from a business and I hope my dad doesn't mind me saying this, but from a kind of business planning, aspirational perhaps view, I think my dad has always been very happy with what's comfortable and um, I don't want to say easy, but what's kind of straightforward, um, a bit more risk averse, perhaps. And for me growing up, I was always, I've always wanted to run before I could walk. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not a great thing in a lot of aspects, but what it does often do and what it's certainly done for me is just put myself in situations where I've had to figure things out very quickly and go, oh, crikey, how have I got here? Yeah. I better figure this out. Um, now, dad was never like that growing up. So whilst we had the same interests, I would often ask my dad questions or, or, or look at what other people similar age to my dad were doing as a, a successful business or running businesses or doing things themselves. And I'd almost be thinking, like, why, is, why isn't my dad doing that? Why isn't he trying to aspire to have the next biggest and best company? Why is he not trying to be a multi, multi, multi-millionaire? Yeah. Um, the reality being that he that wasn't his priority in life. He just wanted to live a nice life with you know, people around him, the people around him that he loves, and um, and a career that he enjoys without the added stress and pressure. Mm -hmm. um, so, Dad's influence was definitely there, certainly there for the automotive side. But if anything, it was Dad's approach to working life uh, that gave me a very different outlook. I wanted to go and take the risks. I wanted to go and try things I wanted to yeah. put myself under the pressure and have a bit of a perhaps even a bit of a miserable time doing it because I wanted to figure out what that was like yeah um so so yeah that's that's how I've kind of got to where I am really it's just by a lot of having a go seeing what it's like yeah um yeah taking a taking the occasional risk here and there yeah I suppose that's that's it it's a very mature standpoint to have almost thinking do you know what let's just go with the flow. Let's see what happens as opposed to feeling like you have to follow suit with previous generations and what they've done. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And it can be, uh, it's, it's funny when you look back on things in hindsight. I mean, I remember being a plucky 15, 16, 17 year old. And as we all do as 15, mm -hmm. 16, 17 year olds, you think you know everything about the world. Mm -hmm. You think, you know, oh, I know gotcha. what I'm going to be. <laughs> I know I'm, how I'm going to get there. I know what everyone else in my family has done wrong. So therefore, I'm going to learn from them and I'm going to do it my way. 
And I remember thinking that, yeah, believing that so clearly. And now, you know, as a 35-year-old man myself, mm-hmm. I, I think back on those years and think, God, that was a, you know, there, I was quite naive to it. But then at the same time, it perhaps, that, that kind of blasé, ignorant approach to certain things certainly got me into scenarios that otherwise, if I was a bit more reserved and shy, mm-hmm. I maybe wouldn't have even attempted. So yeah, it's it swings and roundabouts, doesn't it, as to what's good and bad. It's exactly that. I mean, when we think, do you know what? Yes, we all went through that phase of sheer arrogance, mm. <laughs> let's call it that, and naivety and perhaps throwing ourselves into things without even knowing the background or mm. what it actually is about or you know in any situation you don't know much about it but you yeah. go for it anyway and I think maybe if we were to draw something from that as adults when you develop the fear and you go into this mindset of oh, I need money mm, yeah <laughs> I need to be sensible that seems to almost distort what it is that we want as as humans I suppose completely yeah it's very easy to become obsessed with the materialistic things you look mm. I mean you know I was I was that age at l- late 2000s so yeah 2009 10 11 mm-hmm. 12 that sort of era uh, or maybe even slightly before and things like social media hadn't quite grasped as much of an influence then you know mm-hmm. perhaps as Instagram does to today's generation of 15 to 20 year olds mm-hmm. Um, but even then, you know, I remember thinking the, the the sign of success is money. I need to yeah. go out and earn money. Mm-hmm. And before I do that, I'm not succeeding. And I think, you know, back then that was a, a much simpler time than it is now with people mm-hmm. constantly being bombarded on social media with people that seem to be driving the best cars and wearing the best clothes and wearing a £30,000 Rolex and, and everything else. And so... Yeah, I think it's so easy to get distracted by that. And and perhaps I did get blindsided blindsided by it a bit myself thinking I need to I need to immediately be succeeding when it's mm-hmm. life just isn't quite as easy as yeah. that simply. <laughs> it's not not quite like that, is it? But we forget, I think. Mm. So going back into that then. So that transition point from you know, listening to your dad and actually realizing what he said and finding out for yourself. Mm. Where did you go next? What did you think? I'm going to try this. Um, I uh, Well, it wasn't automotive, interestingly. I was getting progressively more frustrated with not knowing what I wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a clear vision. You know, some of my friends, I think back to some of my friends at school and, yeah, later years of high school, early years of college or sixth form, mm. um, a lot of friends had a perfect plan. And funnily enough, I think if I'd have been a more academic person, if I'd have been more intelligent... Uh, to to put it in another way, I'd perhaps have liked to have been a doctor. That's ah. the only thing, the only thing in life that I think I would have been perhaps quite good at and uh, enjoyed. Um, helping people has always been mm. something that's been installed in me from a very young age. My my mum was a very caring person, and she was a, a nursery nurse in my early years. She was then a teacher. She was always compassionate role. She was a very compassionate yeah. person. So that definitely rubbed off on me in, in wanting to help and support and encourage. So I thought doctor would be a great thing to do. Unfortunately, academically, I'm just not clever enough. <laughs> that's it's, the it's uh, difficult. <laughs> that's the be all and end all. So uh, so that was never going to be an option. Other than that, I had no idea. And a lot of my friends seemed to be even from like. 15, 16, they knew what they wanted to be studying at university. 
they knew that they were going to university to study architecture, yep. to become an art- architect, and that's what they were going to be doing for the rest of their lives. Or a marine biologist, or, you know, there were friends of mine that seemed to have everything mapped out. And I was sat there like, how do you all got, how does everyone know what they're doing? And I haven't got a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did something very silly. I was sat in a sixth form hall uh, doing my AS levels, I believe. And um, I had a head of year who, I want to say his name was Mr. Doyle from Wimbledon College. Mm-hmm. And I want to, yeah, I think it was Mr. Doyle. And I did not want to be in this exam. It was not a subject that I was aspiring to do. It was one of those compulsory subjects you needed needed to do as part of the school sixth form. Yeah. And uh, I, before the exam had started, I was chatting away with a friend of mine nearby and Mr. Doyle walked over and said, uh, look, Markar, if you don't want to be here, nobody's forcing you, you can just leave. Right. <laughs> And I did. And that was it. I walked out. I, uh, well, you say say that. It it takes guts. It takes stupidity. And I think on reflection, you know, at the time, I probably thought I was the bee's knees walking out of that exam hall and everyone looking going, what's he doing? Um, But I left. But I didn't just leave the exam hall. I I walked out of the sixth form college. I went in to see Mr. Doyle the next day and I said, look, I can't do this because I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what I'm working towards. And at the moment, you know, what you've got to do as well is, for those of us that have reached a, a certain age, you look back on those teenage years and it was all happening in a heartbeat. You know, the, the mm-hmm. school, the sixth form, everything happened in a heartbeat. But when you're there and you're in it, thinking ahead, the next 12 months of your life as a 17-year-old is a lifetime. That is a ridiculous amount of time. And I remember thinking, I can't wait any longer. I have to go out and find my way. I have to go out and find my thing. Right. Um, so I did. I left without any plan. I left with some AS levels, uh, a bit of English language and literature, um, beyond that, and some art, arty stuff, quite mm-hmm. an arty person. But other than that, I had no plan. I got the AS levels that weren't going to get me to university anyway. So at this point, if I'm deciding I want to go to university, I need to start again, as far as I'm concerned. Not mm-hmm. an option. Not doing another two years of studying. Um, apprenticeships weren't really much of a thing back then. But then again, there wasn't really anything in particular I was being drawn towards to go and try beyond mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went and worked for a short period of time in a garden centre where I'd been a part-timer. I had a part-time yep. job since I was about 14. I think I did some work experience and the guys kept me on. That was an aquarium in yep. a garden centre. I loved that job. It was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had because it was just easy and fun and the people that I worked with were, were brilliant. Um but very quickly, I, after joining up full time, I remember thinking, "I, it sounds it sounds horrible to say, but I, I remember thinking, I, there's more to me than this. You know, it's, there's more to me than working in a garden centre, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not testing. It's very easy. It's very comfortable. It's very enjoyable because it was. You know, the people that I worked with were, were hilarious. It was brilliant. Um, but it wasn't challenging, and it wasn't crucially earning me mm-hmm. enough money. Uh, so I went into property. I did the easy, oh, wow. that go-to thing that all people that have no qualifications and want to earn money can do. And that is you either go into recruitment or you go into a state agency. Yeah. I did the latter. I went into a state agency. And for the next three and a bit years, I, I worked in residential lettings in the family house market of Southwest London. And I earned an absolute killing letting houses. Gosh, so that, that is was... something new every day for me, <laughs> Mr. Walker. Right. <laughs> So yeah, that was me. That was that was me. Um, and what that did is, uh, perhaps unbeknown to me at the time, it taught me a lot of new skills. Mm. It it opened up a a world that I previously hadn't even had any concept of how accessible it was. That world being wealth, 
mm-hmm. um, and not not wealth from me, wealth from the clientele that I was looking after. Yeah. I was letting yeah, big five, six, seven bedroom family houses in, oh. in and around Wimbledon, Fulham, Chelsea. Uh, big money, £15,000 a month, that sort of Gosh. rent level, even back then in, in 2007, seven, eight, And... Um, I realized, my God, there are people out with lots of money, a lot more money than I could even comprehend. You know, yeah. The idea now of spending £15,000 a month yeah. on renting somebody else's property blows my mind. So you can imagine what it was doing to 19, 20-year-old me back then. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the other thing that it did is it, it, it taught me that level of wealth. It taught me that these, sort of, these kind of people existed. And also, it gave me something to aspire to. It, it was quite an aspirational moment. Uh, in that job and in that industry, I worked with some fascinating people. I worked with some absolute knobs as mm-hmm. well. <laughs> and I learned very quickly that, um, you know, perhaps no myth, that uh, certain estate agents have a certain aura about them. They yes. are, it takes a yes. certain, as some people say, it takes a certain personality to be an estate agent. And that personality, usually a very short one-syllable word that we can't say in a podcast. Exactly that. Um, <laughs> Moving swiftly on from yeah. that word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I knew that I wasn't that person. I knew that, uh, I also knew and figured out very quickly that I wasn't going to be the one that was going to change the industry sure. because you can't compete against it. And I remember I, I did quite well at the role. I was one of the, the top earners. I was one of the top negotiators. We had a, uh, a chart that went out at the end of every quarter to show which agents and, and which negotiators in which branches were doing particularly well. I was always up the top, never at the top, but always up high, Gosh. top 10. Yeah. And I was looking at the guys and the girls that were above me who were earning more and were doing more deals. And I remember my lettings director, a lady called Leslie, um, she she came into the office one day and said, look, what I think you need to do, because you've got the potential, you've got the stock here, you've got the ability, what I think you need to do in order to be at the top, the number one spot, get those big quarterly bonuses, you need to be like Tim in Chelsea or Claire in Fulham or Lucy over the road and... I just remember thinking, there's no way. There is no way I can be that person. Um, I will always like to think of myself as a, a nice, approachable person, compassionate, and uh, I, the people that were earning that big money were not that version of, of, of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it was at that point that I started to think, do you know what, this isn't me either. This isn't, I'm never going to make a career out of this. And it was a, a chap in the office, a guy called John Richards, who I'd love to know what he's doing now, but he was an older gentleman, probably in his late 50s, early 60s at this point. And he loved his cars. He loved his cars. He'd been an estate agent since he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. He'd worked incredibly hard. He was a director or a partner of, of the, the brand. Um, did an amazing, had an amazing career. Um, and the thing that I, the, the thing that brought us together close, closely was the fact that he was into cars as well. Right. And at the point that I started to earn lots of money, it enabled me to start buying a cool car here and there. And I, when I say a cool car, I'm talking about like £3,000 worth of Mazda MX-5. And I'd start going on track days because, again, that was like the, the interest was there. Suddenly, mm-hmm. I always wanted to drive on track. And now I had the means to do it. I could take the commission I've made from a couple of deals, go and buy a car, put myself onto a track day. And I was like, wow, this, this, this is it. Suddenly I started realizing that this world was exciting and, and potentially what I wanted to be doing. Right, yeah. Um, and I think it was a trip. Uh, there was a, a, a group of friends that I had. We used to go drinking together in and around Wimbledon. Um, 
a lot of all, all of them in fact are still very close friends of mine and we were all at that same sort of stage in our life we were doing a job that was just doing for now it was getting us by mm-hmm. we were all earning okay money uh, but we all wanted to be out doing more stuff on track with with our cars traveling the world going to the Nürburgring in Germany um, one day uh, one of the friends who'd been a few times before just said um, well come to the Nürburgring let's go let's let's do it next month yeah uh just for a weekend away that one friend yeah exactly (laughs) that one friend is called alistair clark (laughs) so alistair clark who uh anyone that knows me personally will know al and anyone that's been listening to the entire back catalogue of the driven chat podcast would have heard al he features on one of the early episodes Uh, as a film director now but at the time he was uh running a little pokey little track day company called mazda on track and alistair said to me well you know if you want to get more involved in the track day side of things come and do bits and pieces with us mm. as well as doing the estate agency stuff and so I started getting a taste of it I started getting a taste of these events and a bit of traveling we were going over to Nürburgring in Germany we were going over to Spa in Belgium yeah. as well as driving around circuits in the UK and I was like oh no, this is this is what I want to be doing this yeah. is the not necessarily the be all and end all job but this is the industry I want to be in and I remember going into my estate agency office and talking to John Richards and going, look, this opportunity's come up where I feel like I need to explore it. I, I need to go and have a go and see if it works out. And I will never forget the words that John Richards said to me, which was that as much as he'd enjoyed his career and enjoyed the, the success and the, the fruitful side of life that had come with being a successful estate agent, mm-hmm. if he could have turned back a clock to being 20 years old again, Yep. And having the opportunity to try something new in the automotive world with cars, he would have done it. And that was all right. I needed to hear. So from that point onwards, I walked away from still to this day, one of the highest earning positions I've ever had as a 22 yeah. year old, I think by this point, and went out to earn nothing running track days. So... <laughs> Big, brave, bold move right there. Let's face That's it. That's a polite I way of saying it. I, or you could say stupid. Um, <laughs> which again, it, you know, it's like the day, it, it was a bit like, I, had the, I remember having the same gut feeling that I had when I walked out of the sixth form exam hall. Mm. This, it was a mixture of, this is cool. I'm off to do, I'm off to pursue my destiny. Yep. With this other part of me going, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you were to put like you say, that that particular feeling into words for anybody that might want to relate to this right now or further down the line or whatever. Mm. How would you describe that feeling um, when you make that decision to either go from the confusion of not knowing what you want to do or the confusion when you've made that decision and actually you're thinking, is this a good idea or, or not? It's, how would I describe it? It's very difficult because, of course, that, would have been a mindset of somebody that sees the world as a 21-year-old mm. and not as somebody that sees it as a 35-year-old now. Mm-hmm. I think back to the reaction of my family at the time I was living with my aunt and my grandfather. And I remember my aunt asking questions like, have you thought this through? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure you want to give up on this career and uh, and and earnings and company car? I had mm. a company car, you know. Uh, are you sure you want to give up on all of that and, and go and try something else? And I, re- I remember having the conversation and I could understand her concern. Mm-hmm. But equally, I was I was still a ballsy young guy. So mm-hmm. I had no reason to doubt myself. And I remember saying to her, my Auntie Margaret, I remember saying, I would rather go and try it all now at the age I am mm-hmm. with nothing to lose. Because I had nothing to lose. If it all went wrong and it all fell apart, I could go and knock back on the door of the estate agent and start again. Mm. 
mm-hmm. easily. So it wasn't, I didn't have children to worry about. I didn't have a mortgage to worry about. I didn't have any dependables at all. And, um, and I still don't, I should make that clear. But you do look at the world in a very different way because, of course, you're, you're at that age where you're like, I'm young enough to get started. I'm young enough to carry on. I'm young enough to take the risk. I'm young enough to bite the bullet. So how to describe that emotion? I guess um, an element of bravery, but it was a... It was all, it, it was all, I'm quite, believe it or not, quite a risk averse person in the grand scheme of things. Mm. So I knew about the risk I was taking. I knew that this might not work out, but equally with everything else that I had in my life and, and the structure of what had been set up, I remember thinking, it doesn't matter if it all goes wrong. I'd rather get it all wrong now yeah. than get to my early sixties and be a John Richard and talk to somebody else in my office and go, God, I wish I'd taken that opportunity or at least yeah. had a go. Yeah. So I don't know if I can tell you what the emotion is because I, d- I genuinely don't know. But yeah, it's yeah. it's a uh, it's a strange one. It's a, it's the kind of thing I think when you know it, it's going to happen, or when you've got the sensation of the desire, you just do it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Mm. For anybody that's listening that is perhaps in a similar position right now, none of us can probably describe that feeling. No. However. <laughs> It's uh, the words of John. Let's and would I say, those. would I say, go and do it? That's the other thing, you know. As a, as a, maybe a twenty-five-year-old, I might have. I might have said, yeah, just do it. Go and have a go. Yeah. Uh, but now, maybe I'd be like, well, think about it. Yeah. But, it's that instilled yeah. fear that we develop, though, isn't it? It's that. It is. Yeah. The older you get, the the more risk averse you become. Mm. The more you learn to find security in normality. Yeah. And. Sometimes I wish that I'd been a bit more gung-ho when I was younger, taking even more risks because yeah. you never know where you'd be. But everything happens. I, I believe, whilst I don't believe in fates and things like that, but I believe there is a process to be followed to things. And a lot of the times it's great to give yourself the opportunity to learn and to adapt and mm-hmm. to look back on things and go, okay, would I do it the same way again? Maybe not, yeah. but glad I did it. So you've taken on this opportunity. You've mm. left the dream that might be... <laughs> the car, the commission, et cetera, et cetera. And you've taken this opportunity that has almost brought you full circle back to automotive, back to excitement, back to mm. the things you really love mm. as a kid, let's face it. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Um, many years of questioning what on earth I'm doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we all do that yeah. consistently. <laughs> uh, what on earth? Yeah, what on earth was I doing? So I guess... The early stages of getting involved with the track day company, it became mm-hmm. very clear very quickly that um, the running a track day company with my friends wasn't going to make me a millionaire. Right. It wasn't going to make me wealthy. It was maybe not even going to get me by. Um, so I very quickly went out to pursue other work in addition to the event stuff. So it was temp work. It mm-hmm. was call centers. It was um, whatever I could find to past the time I was going into, you know, employment companies or temping agencies and going, right, here's my skill set, here's what I've done. Mm-hmm. Met with really confused faces because, of course, for the past three and a half years, I've been a, a high-earning estate agent that's yeah. now being like, um, yeah, I'll sit in an office and do data entry. Yeah. I'll sit in a call centre and take calls about people on ho- you know, needing help on holiday. Um yeah, it was a it, it was an interesting it was an interesting little chapter. I I guess I kind of got the fear at one point when I realised that okay, it's not easy. 
just giving it all up and having a go. Um, so I actually, I actually disappeared for six months. I decided what I wanted to do was explore another aspect of my area of interest, which had always fascinated me, uh, and that was travel. And I wanted to, I wanted to, I decided. I think it would, we come into like a winter time, and of course, events. Um, outside events in the wintertime tend to die down. They tend to get quieter. So I, I was suddenly sat at home twiddling my thumbs thinking, what on earth am I going to do now? Um, and by chance, I ended up seeing a job advert for TUI, right. the travel company. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for people to work in resorts, um, like a holiday rep, essentially. Mm-hmm. Working a holiday um, resort, helping out people that are on holiday with their kind of um, day-to-day stuff complaints that sort of stuff but it meant Mm -hmm. living in a nice hot sunny place I had no idea where that was going to be yeah I went and had a chat with this travel company and I was offered a job immediately and for the next six months of my life the summer 2009 I lived in Greece and I did absolutely nothing to do with cars I did absolutely nothing to do with any aspect of the automotive industry I lived in a little town in Halkidiki in uh, in Greece for six months and worked for a travel company and yep. again, I went into this with no prior experience, no qualifications. I just went in, had a job interview, had a conversation with the right people. And they said, yeah, we've got a job for you. This is where you're going to be stationed for for six months. And that was one of the best six months of my life because it was like a almost like a transition chapter. It was a, a, a scene break between this entry into adult life, put on the suit, put on the shirt, put on the tie, go and earn mm-hmm. the money, get the company car, go home, do it all again tomorrow. Yeah. That was kind of very easily could have slipped into all of that. Then came this taste of I need to go and pursue my dream, which is running an events company or or traveling the world with cars. Realized that's not that easy. You can't just go into it. There's a lot to be said for experience. Mm -hmm. And so this opportunity came along to break it all up. And of course, at the time, I didn't know that it was going to be a middle chapter. I just saw it as that'll be fun. Yeah. And I'll be in a hot country and it'll be great. So I went and did it for six months. In fact, I did six months in Greece and I did another three months in Mexico. Oh, wow. Um, before I then realised that, uh, no, it's t- like this has been fun and I could easily fall into this life for many years and mm-hmm. keep doing this for many years. But I know that there's something more for me out there. I know that I must go out and pursue that dream, whatever that dream is, of working in the automotive space and working yeah. with cars, working with people, learning more, exploring more. Um, so I went home. I went home, and at the point of getting home, I became very close with a, a particular chap called Tim Hutton, mm-hmm. who has gone on to now to be one of my absolute best friends in the world. But I met Tim, funnily enough, before I went off to Greece for that bizarre chapter. Whilst I was still doing bits and pieces with the track day company, I met Tim at the Nürburgring in Germany. He pulled in into the car park of the um, world-famous Norschleifer, the, the big North Loop. Uh, mm-hmm. And he pulled in in an Aston Martin. I believe it was like a nice, dark, sort of burgundy red. Beautiful thing. Very nice. Pulled in in this Aston Martin Vantage. And I went, whoa, this guy, this guy's got it going yeah. on. Like he's Eyes on him. He's pulled up in an Aston. <laughs> um, he talks a good talk. Um, and I didn't know Tim at all. In fact, I'd gone out there with Alistair. We'd gone out there to do some event stuff. And, uh, yeah, this guy comes in. I remember Alistair saying, you need to meet this guy. He's, he's quite cool. He's quite interesting. So I got to know Tim whilst I was there at the Nürburgring and uh, very quickly established that the beautiful Aston Martin he turned up in was a press car. Mm -hmm. Tim was a motoring journalist. He was writing for a magazine. 
and it all kind of made sense. And immediately I was like, okay, this guy's a bit more relatable. I'm not talking to a multi, multi, multi-millionaire here. Yeah. I'm talking to somebody who's a bit like me, has an interest in cars. He writes about cars. That's a cool job, I remember thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, in the time that I went away to Greece and, and Mexico, Tim and I just carried on talking. You know, whilst I was away, we'd keep talking, we'd, we'd share ideas. And I very quickly realized this guy has got quite a clear vision of where he wants to go. And sure. it may, there may be an opportunity for me to piggyback on or, or to do stuff with him and learn from him and, and do stuff mm. together. A bit like a role model, really. In a sense. Mm. I mean, he'll be listening to this and I wouldn't want to give him that, uh, that credit <laughs> of being a role model. Hear that, but Timothy? I certainly, <laughs> I certainly saw there was something about Tim that was quite similar to myself mm. in that Tim hadn't had the most conventional route to get to where he got to. Yeah. He'd taken chances, he'd taken risks, he'd done bits and pieces here and there to see what would work, to see what wouldn't work. Yeah. And I really respected that. And it was kind of proof as if to say, you don't have to have a plan. You can just kind of have a go and, and things will hopefully uh, come together. But yes, uh, there I was sat on a beach, and I'm not making this up, sat on a beach in Mexico over Christmas. It would have been Christmas 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, hot, sunny Christmas day, sat on the beach, and I remember thinking, this is this is fine, but it's not what I want. And I started, I sent Tim a message and said, look, um, what are the odds of there being something for me? I don't know what it is. I don't know what the plan is. I just know that I want to do something similar to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any way you can fit me in or point me in the right direction? And he basically said, well, funnily enough, I'm coming up with a new magazine, an online magazine, um, I need people that know about cars, who might want to write about cars, who might want to do cool video shoots with cars. Come and get involved. As simple as Brilliant. that. And that was it. So I remember talking to my boss of uh, of the travel company in Mexico going, so I'm going to go back to rainy, wintry England and um, going to pursue a career or try to pursue a career in and around the automotive industry yep. with journalism and writing and stuff like that. And she, my boss, was like, okay, that's weird. Um, but whatever. Each to their own. Each to their own, absolutely. <laughs> and that's what I did. I went home and I found myself almost back where I was before I went to Greece. And yeah. it was like, oh, okay, I'm back in this cold, wintry country. Um, I've spent a, a year almost now being in hot, sunny locations, beautiful five-star resorts and hotels. Uh, eating lovely food and and my day offs consisted of going to the beach and Mm. snorkeling scuba diving yeah yeah. and suddenly here I am back at the bottom of the ladder again trying to get into this industry but this time there was something different there was a bit more of a clear vision thanks to the likes of Tim Uh, I went back into as well the the track day world so I started doing bits and pieces with Alistair and Mazda Mm -hmm. on track we developed Mazda on track to broaden it to a, a slightly wider market. We called it Performance Track Days. So we had these two companies running alongside each other. Yep. And again, I was under no doubt. I didn't. I knew that I wasn't going to be a millionaire from doing what we were doing. But things at that point started to take shape. And I started doing some writing for Tim. Yeah. Um, again, no qualifications to do it. No degree in journalism or writing or anything like that. Uh, it was just something I was having a go at. And Tim yeah. was very good. He kind of gave me some pointers, put me in the right direction. I met some amazing people very quickly, which is, again, a, a huge asset to anyone that's looking to change their career or, or try something new. It's, it's about networking with people that are doing a similar thing to what you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And um, and again, being quite a personable person, that, that came quite naturally to me. So there was a lot of, yeah, just exploring 
ideas, sharing ideas, talking to people, meeting people. Yeah. And it's amazing how many times you'd get talking to somebody and the minute that they kind of warm to you and you warm to them and you have a good chat and then suddenly an opportunity comes like that. The phone will ring the next day and it'll be that person that you just had a coffee with the day before by chance at at an event. And they say, look, you were talking about doing this yesterday. I'm actually working on something similar. Come and have a go and see how you get on with this. And that was basically what started happening. And almost serendipity. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. You know, it's some people would say, "Oh, you know what? It's fate, or it, you manifested it, or all this." And I get that. I understand people that think like that, but I almost think it discredits us as humans mm-hmm. because it's not the fact that it's fate that's done it. It's the fact that I've had an interest in doing it. I've wanted to do it, yeah. and I've put myself forward to do it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's the only reason the opportunities come forward. If I didn't have that conversation, if I didn't go out of my way to be that personable person and talk to that stranger, then that stranger was never going to offer me a job the next day. Yeah. Or a, a day, even just a day rate to go and help with another event production. So that ended up happening for a bit longer. And I, you know, I'll make it very clear, I was still having to do bits and pieces in call centres to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working for a travel company uh, based in Kingston-upon-Thames, Travel Republic. Yep. I was there uh, working at call centres, taking inbound calls from people that were planning holidays or on holidays or compla- giving complaints about holidays. Mm-hmm. And it was fine. It paid the bills because it was like, that's what I'm doing. So I'd be doing that maybe three or four days a week. And then every other day, every spare hour of any other day, I was either building my own thing or working on somebody else's event or yep. planning a track day. It just, I knew that that's what I wanted to end up doing. And and, and that was that. Yeah, I that ticked along for for quite some time until until the big break came along the driven chat podcast in association with paramex digital ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the big break being? Gumball 3000. Boom. Boom. Mic <laughs> drop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gumball 3000. Now, all the credit and all the thanks to Gumball 3000 chapter needs to go again to Tim Hutton because Tim worked previously for Gumball. Tim worked for Gumball back in the early days, I think around 2004, 2005. He did a year or two working for Gumball, working for Maximilian Cooper. Um, Tim's background was graphic design. So yeah. he, he used to do all the logos and the um, any kind of publications that went out, logo designs for clothing, um, all the beautiful graphics that he used to do for for the events was all Tim. Yeah. Um, now, Tim walked away from that for a few years and then decided in a kind of revisit, he decided he wanted to go back to Gumball. And in talking to Maximilian Cooper from Gumball, Max said to Tim, um, whilst I've got you, we're looking for a new events guy mm-hmm. or girl. 
we want somebody to come in. Um, their events person had just walked out, just left, unbeknown to me. Yep. I just thought the job had come up. It uh, turns out that whoever was doing the job before me had stormed out in a half and gone, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, remember Tim phoning me up and going, look, I've just had a chat with Maximilian Cooper off of Gumball. Uh, would you be interested in having a conversation about being the new events guy or being on the events team? I think it was sold to me as. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my God, um, yeah, but there's no Huge way. Obsession. Yeah, I, you know, I remember thinking that. But I also remember thinking, there's no way I'm qualified to do this. That is, a, that is an event professional's job. That is somebody that has gone to university, studied event management, studied business management, has an understanding of uh, corporate sponsorship and... There was so much, as far as I was concerned, I looked at this and just thought, I'll have the conversation, of course I will, but there is no way on earth yeah. I'm getting that job. That's our human default though, isn't it? I, I think, think so. A lot of people can relate to. You go into this blind panic of, I can't do that. Yeah. What are they on about? Yeah. But actually, you know, it takes that ability to say, well, hold on a minute, I can do it. Let's see what happens. And taking that chance and believing in yourself, I suppose, yeah. to a... A point. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It mm. was, um, yeah, it was a kind of, I don't think, it, up until maybe the second or third conversation that I had with Max, mm. I didn't even allow myself to vision I'd be anything more than an events support person. Like mm. I knew they, they put on these huge events every year and they needed a, an army of people to help manage these events. And as far as I was concerned, I was going in to have these conversations, but all that was going to come of this was I'd be given the opportunity to go on one of one or two of these events and be a one of the production team, which would have been fine. I would have been delighted to do it because it was what an event, what a beautiful, wonderful, crazy event. Um, and then I got an email from Max and Max's sister Lucy, who at the time was responsible for the event production as well, saying, um, "So it's between you and one other guy." And we're a bit stuck right. uh, and we don't know, you know, where to go with it, which was very, very open of them. Um, and I remember emailing Lucy back going, well, look, I can tell you categorically if the other guy's got experience in event management and if he's got a degree in event management, he's going to be better at the job. Mm. But what I can offer is absolute commitment to this. If you take me on, I'm a very fast learner. I'll pick up what I need to pick up. I'll take on what I need to take on. Uh, it might be difficult, it might be hellish, but I will give this my all. And I think I have a good understanding of the brand. I think I have a good understanding of how you want things to look. Um, so if that works for you, then it works for me, and I'm happy to give it a go. And Cue that old sales pitch the, right there. The following, yeah. <laughs> which, I, I mean, I remember, I remember writing that email. I remember thinking really hard about whether... I, in fact, I remember thinking at one point I should probably reply and go, I understand, Um Go with the other guy. Because <laughs> clearly, if the other guy's um, also making you think, then he has to he has to know what he's talking about. Um, Lucy emailed the next morning with a job offer. And that was me. For the next th- two and a half, three years, I was Brilliant. went in as event coordinator of the Gumball 3000 rally and other events. And then um, once the first my first rally had gone past, which was 2013... I, um, Max kind of gave me the um, unofficial position of head mm-hmm. of production for the for the event. In his words, that was my role. Mm-hmm. You're head of production, you're going to deal with the kind of logistics, road closures, the, 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 the big kind of spectacle of the event, and then alongside an amazing team 
uh, and a small team. This was the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that, that the team that put that rally together is actually only about six people. It's a very, very small team that, that manages the, or certainly it was then, that managed the... The, the structure of this whole thing you had the people you had myself as the kind of road closures logistics route planning recce driving that role uh, then we had a team for hotels because of course mm-hmm. you can imagine you know 500 people each night in a different city needing hotel rooms yeah. we had a hotels team uh, we had a corporate sponsorship team we had a team dedicated to just parties Love so <laughs> every single night there'd be a huge nightclub takeover in um, in whichever city we were staying in. Mm-hmm. So that had a team and uh, my little group of uh, road closure people and recce route, route planning yeah. was great because I used to work with Max. It was Max and I, we'd sit on Google Maps some, some nights late into the night planning a route going, right, we want to get roughly this many miles in a day. We want to drive for this many hours. What city could we go to? And then, of course, you've gone from planning a route on Google Maps to phoning up the mayor's office in... Atlanta the following yeah. morning going hi here's our company and here's what we're hoping to do can we bring it to your city um so Brilliant. yeah from the absolute core of a blank whiteboard in yep. lit in the literal sense a black blank whiteboard on the side of a wall we would plan our routes and yeah so my first year my first year year had already been planned Copenhagen to Monaco mm-hmm. but the following year was my route that was Miami to Ibiza in seven days. Yeah. And the year after that was uh, Stockholm to Vegas in seven days. Um, and, of course, there was influence from sponsors and partners and um, people going going to their cities so that it was relevant to them. Uh, but everything that happened in between those routes mm-hmm. um, was, yeah, was a lot of it. was was me and my brain. You made it happen. Made it happen, and yeah. how did that feel? Did you Could you comprehend what exactly you'd just done? Terrifying. Yeah. Um, in every sense of the word. Because I think that was the first time that I experienced what I now still talk about openly to this day, uh, which is imposter syndrome. Mm. Suddenly I realised that I was responsible for the largest moving motoring event in the world. I was a key person to making this event unfold. Mm -hmm. And when you allow yourself to realise that, you either go one of two ways. You either go, wow, this is awesome. I can't believe I'm doing this. And you crack on and get it done. Or this voice comes forward inside of you and goes, what on earth do you think you're doing? Mm -hmm. Why are you here? (laughs) You are an imposter. You should not be here. You should not have the keys to this car. You should not be talking to the mayor of New York. You should not be doing these things. Um, And and that happened. That's the problem, isn't it? That that side of the brain, unfortunately for most of us, tends to be the stronger side. Of course it does. Because it's safety. The chimp brain, as they call it. Yeah, it's (laughs) the safety thing. It's, It's safer to not climb to the top of the tree. And that's why when we get to the top of a tree or a high thing, your brain goes, ah, you find this uncomfortable. Because your brain knows that if you fall off, you're going to die. <laughs> Whereas if you're halfway up the tree, you might hurt yourself, but it's not going to be as bad. Yeah. And imposter syndrome does exactly the same thing. It realises that, hey, you're quite high up here. Yeah. So if you fall, this is going to really hurt. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, the, historically, I learned very quickly once I'd started in that role that Nobody lasted more than a year mm-hmm. at Gumble. You went in, you did a rally, and you left. Right. And I couldn't understand why. Right up to the point that I was halfway through my first rally. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, the minute this is over, I am done. I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. Because it's chaos. It is absolute chaos. Right. You can plan and plan and plan to the nth degree. But the reality is, you don't know what's going to happen day to day. Things will go wrong. People will get lost. 
Hotels will not get your bookings right. Yeah. Road closure permits will be filed by the wrong person in the wrong place and therefore you get there and the road closure isn't how you imagined it was going to be. Yeah. But the event's happening and it needs to continue happening and this is happening every single day. Yeah. And I remember getting to the end of that first year pulling into Monaco. I had a team of, we had a team of about 65 event staff that came on just for that one rally. Mm. And one of the guys on my little events team worked out at the end of the week that over the course of about 13 days i'd slept for four hours oh blimey so i was absolutely (laughs) physically and emotionally exhausted absolutely exhausted and i remember standing on the roof of the fairmont hotel watching the 2013 formula one race uh the last year of the noisy v8 so i remember thinking oh this is special like i'd always wanted to see a monaco f1 Mm. and there i was the last year of the noisy v8 engines yeah um and all i wanted to do was go to bed I wanted to get on a plane and go straight home and go straight to bed and go to sleep and forget that any of this had ever happened. It was an absolute attack on everything, my senses, my expectations, the whole thing. And I categorically said to myself, I'm glad I've done this, Mm. but I am done. I'm absolutely done. Um, But are you glad you did it? Oh, completely, Mm. completely. And yeah, I I was delighted that I'd been there. Um, But yeah, I remember up until the point that I got home, and I got into my own bed. I was thinking, how am I going to hand him a notice? How am I going to tell Max that after this mad first trip that I'm done? Mm. And then I started seeing the videos, the photographs, Mm -hmm. the magazine articles, the newspaper articles, the news reports that people had managed to save and were sending around internally in in our company. Yeah. And I was watching all of this and consuming all this media and going, oh, oh, hang on yeah. a minute. I did that. So you're that seeing was everything that you orchestrated. Exactly. On paper. Yeah. I <laughs> wow. was stood in the middle of this bonkers display. Mm. And all I'm seeing is, think of it like fireworks. You're standing in the middle of the firework display and all you're seeing is bright flashes and loud bangs going, yeah. oh, this is quite an attack on the senses. But the reality is everyone that's spectating is seeing this beautiful show. Mm-hmm. And I realised then, only then, for the first time, that this, despite the chaos, despite the nightmare, despite the difficulty, we'd put on a really cool show. Yeah. And there was absolutely no way that I was going to walk away from that. So yeah. for uh, the next two years, the next two rallies, and, a, and an element of planning the third rally after that, um, that was me. That was my, yeah. my day to day, full time job, Monday to Friday. Um, event coordinator of Gumball 3000 yeah, up to 2015. And this is the thing now. We'll visit certain events across the year and even still, certain people will approach John Marker sat in front of me <laughs> and yeah. go, oh, you, you sorted out Gumball. Yeah. It was you. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> so true. It was monumental. Yeah. It was a huge, yeah, I mean, it was a huge thing. I don't think even at the time of Maybe even handing in my notice, I didn't realise quite how significant that was as an event. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything looks better in hindsight, right? We always look back on things and go... Wonderful thing. What an amazing thing I did and what an amazing group of people I worked with. But the reality Mm. is I I did leave. It got to a point where I realised that I was only going to go as far as I could go in that role. And Mm. it wasn't going to be... I was never going to earn huge money. That was the other thing. Gumball 3000, wonderful organisation in some respects, but... There's a huge line of people wanting to work for that company. Yeah. And therefore, it, it was never going to warrant a huge paycheck uh, unless you could bring something into the company that nobody else could. And of course, in, from an event productions kind of thing, there's always going to be somebody else that can do the job. So I realized that I, I'd, I'd done my time. I think, I think I'm think i still the longest serving 
event coordinator to date. Ooh. Might need to double check that. But um, <laughs> yeah, most people will come into a year or two yeah. and then they're done. And uh, I can completely and utterly see why. Mm. But I was a bit stubborn. <laughs> I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to do, a, I wanted it to get bigger and better. Um, it's and not that was always that. a bad thing. No, absolutely, stubborn. absolutely. No, you're right. You're right. It does. It does have its bonuses and perks yeah. from time to time. Yeah. So, just to put that on pause for a second, then mm. let's think. You've gone through. You've gone through the motions at this point. I mean, you've you've kind of gone through full circle as well, and mm. it's brought you back to something that actually, at the crux of it, is your passion. It's mm-hmm. your your hobby slash your passion, mm. and that is automotive. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. It's the thing that. Mr. Marker <laughs> is good with. So you're starting to see all of this on paper mm. from Gumball. It's starting to become very surreal, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I, I realised maybe two years into Gumball yeah. that I was like, oh, oh, hang on. This is what this is the job. This, yeah. is the, this is the job that I've always been thinking about doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing events. I'm working with cars. I'm travelling the world. I'm working with people. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is... Yeah. So yeah, there was a bit of a light bulb moment. Maybe it didn't come to me as clearly as, as I just described. But I do. There was definitely an element where I was like, oh, 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 good. It's 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 yeah. happening. This is it. This is we're we're doing it. We're doing it, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So obviously that lasted for a couple of years. Mm. And after that, I mean, it, it sounds as though at this point you know that you like writing. You uh-huh. know that. I mean, you know things about cars. You yeah. know how to talk about them, et cetera. Mm. And also you're personable, you can organize events, et cetera. So from there, how did that lead you on? Because all of a sudden you find yourself at this point of, okay, I don't know if I can do gumball again. Yeah. Where do I go? Yeah. Um, Yeah, good question. I guess at this point, maybe perhaps at the point of realizing that I now created a bit of a name for myself Mm. in the world of events and in the world of cars, my social media like personal Instagram accounts had gone mm-hmm. from a few hundred followers to a few thousand followers. Yeah. Um, and that was cool. And that was, again, as a result of Gumball. Yeah, Gumball creates a huge fan base. Mm-hmm. And there are people out there, many, many, many thousands of people out there that not only get fascinated by the event that happens each year, they get fascinated by the people that run it. Yeah. So you end up being known for being one of the events team at Gumball. Um and uh, with that comes a bit of a following and, and people, yeah, you go to events, people know who you are. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. that's weird. Yeah. I didn't, was never expecting, <laughs> never expecting this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on a, on a drastically small scale, let's be honest. But uh, Still a scale. It's still a scale. And, <laughs> and, but that's the other, you know, at no point did I ever aspire to be a famous person. I didn't want... Uh, I, I, I didn't enter this industry or do any of this because I wanted a big following. I didn't want people to follow me on Instagram and yeah. because I was a particular person. It didn't, that's not, not what any of this was ever about and it mm-hmm. still isn't, actually. It's pre-influencer mode. Yeah, yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. I think so. And, uh, I mean, influencers, it's a funny word mm-hmm. because we, at Gumball, Gumball was great for many reasons, but it also introduced me to a, a demographic of people I had no previous concept or knowledge of mm-hmm. which was the influences uh, one chap in particular that sticks out in my mind is a nice man called tim tim burton mm-hmm. <coughs> not not tim burton off of uh, titanic um tim burton no that was james cameron who's tim burton tim burton was uh, the one that did nightmare before christmas, nightmare before christmas. <laughs> that's the one the other famous the other film one. director <laughs> um and the new wednesday thing on netflix oh yeah yeah 
uh, Tim Burton as of uh, of uh, as Shmi one hundred and fifty. Yep. Uh, arguably the most famous automotive influencer in the world. Incredible garage full. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I met Tim on Gumball. Didn't know anything about him other than this. I'd heard of this Shmi 150 brand, but it didn't make any sense to me. Um, people, I remember people telling me that this guy had millions of views on YouTube and all he did was follow cars around London. And I was like, that's weird. That's not a, that isn't <laughs> a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to know Tim on Gumball. Uh, got to know him very well and we realised very quickly that we are exactly the same age almost to the week mm-hmm. um, yeah, from very different backgrounds Tim, you know, my upbringing Tim's upbringing are completely different but the thing that we had in common was the fact that we loved cars yeah. um, so I saw this side to people like Tim as an influencer uh, James Walker otherwise known as JWW he was very much in and around the gumball scene for mm-hmm. various reasons. People that follow him or know him personally will know know why. Yeah. Uh, but he was very much around around there as well. And this was before James had picked up a camera as Mr. JWW. He was just James, as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a few others. Seb Delaney, who's a, a big influencer based down near Monaco. Uh, I met all these people on the rally, and I realised that well, these people are like these. These were the people I wanted to finish my day and go to the pub with. Yeah. Not the multi-billionaire gumballers. Great, cool guys, a lot of them, you know, cool story, but high energy substance use that I wasn't interested in. (laughs) Whereas there were the likes of Tim, James, Seb, and a few others. And we were like, we'd finish the end of the day, they'd get all the filming done that they need to get done. And we'd be like, should we just go and have a burger? Should we just go to the pub and have a burger? And that was all all we wanted to do. Um, Like-minded on the burger. Yeah, well, quite. (laughs) So, um, yeah, we... um, I, I developed this this really nice little group of friends, um, and Tim and I, you know, now even even now we we still we're still in touch and we talk a lot. And if we bump into each other at events, it's always nice to have a catch up. But he, oh my God, he's like the busiest man in the world. Um, and that side of life, discovering that world of influences, and again, I always knew that I didn't want to be an influencer. I didn't want to go and do that, um, you know, filming myself driving cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, I did it for a little bit, but I hated it. Um, I hated editing footage of my own face, which is always a challenging thing when you're in that world. Um, but it, what it did was it opened up opportunities for things that I hadn't previously considered. And one of those was a brand called Car Throttle. Mm-hmm. Car Throttle, as anyone that consumes automotive media will know about it, you'll probably think of Alex Kirsten as the face of it. Uh, but Car Throttle at this time in 2015 was kind of on that. It was just about to kind of transform into the really big brand that, that it became. And Adnan, who was running it at the time, he had caught wind of the fact that I was considering leaving Gumball. Mm. Um, and again, similar sort of age, uh, similar outlook on life. And he said, well, look, when you're done uh, with Gumball, let's have a chat, come and do some stuff with us. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. So I left Gumball, I went into Car Throttle, and that was my first... Um, that was my first exposure to car media Mm -hmm. online media on a huge scale their youtube channel had millions of views their online platform for written articles had millions of hits every day uh the um they sold merchandise they they, tens of thousands of pounds of merchandise was going out each month i was like wow this brand is it's big it's powerful and they want me to be part of them so I went into Car Throttle as a bit of an events support, but also went in with the role of community manager. So I used to be um, 
I used to be kind of like an interface between the front end user mm-hmm. and what we were doing. We'd go and film behind the scenes bits and pieces for our YouTube channel. There are, you know, there are still videos on the Car Throttle YouTube channel with me in them. Yeah. Um, there you go. If you want to see a baby face marker. Yeah. If you want to see <laughs> a younger, slightly skinnier version of me, there's, uh, they're there. Uh, we did a film where I uh, took my, I had a Porsche 911 Turbo at the time, nice. and we took that over to the uh, the Mon Classic um, for an event, and we filmed it and documented it, and took a couple of film guys along. Um, that's still there. I think I think the video is called Three Old Supercars Drive to Le Mans" or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So if you want to go and see young me uh, doing my first ever bit to camera in a car, in and around cars, that's where you'll see it. If um, anybody finds that, please feel free to tag him in it. Yeah. yeah. For driven chats, <laughs> put it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I remember being quite happy with the video. I, th- I seem to think it was it was quite good, um, uh, bar one mistake. I made one mistake in it where I incorrectly identified a flat 12 engine as a v12 and the comments really let me know about that Oof. uh just a slip of the tongue of course i knew it was a flat 12 but there we are i don't i haven't let that dwell on me for the past 10 years i can promise you it's okay you can let it go, let it go now. <laughs> this is it this is your sign yeah this is this is the, this is the move on time yeah um but yeah so i ended up doing bits and pieces of car throttle absolutely loved it but again there was this niggling urge at the back of my mind that it still wasn't my thing. I wanted to do my own thing. So I launched my own little company uh, at that time. And again, I had a big boy conversation with Adnan and the guys at Car Throttle and said, look, I'm so grateful for you guys giving me this opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of everything you've built so far and what you're doing. Mm. Um, but I want to go out and do something that's a bit more me. So I ended up, I, I took on a retainer contract with them as their events guy. We organized a good few events with Car Throttle, um, yeah. or as, as I did. Uh, and then I started taking on other work in the world of, um, yeah, marketing, PR, social media management, mm-hmm. a bit of strategy, and loads of events, as you'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, lots of events work. And I did that under a little brand called Mark R Creative. It took me mm-hmm. ages to come up with that name. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I did that for a good few years. Um, and that was kind of, from there, it's, it was a bit like going back to that early chapter of trying to do different things and as many opportunities as possible and have as many conversations as I could. Yeah. Suddenly I was doing that again, but in a, a version of myself where a lot of people knew who I was. Yeah. I knew who a lot of people were. Um, I realized very quickly, as those of you looking to work in the automotive industry, um, certainly on a public-facing, publicity-facing influencer facing world mm-hmm. uh, you soon learn that it's a very small world it's painfully and dangerously small um, those of you that um, are lovely will do very well from it and other people will learn very quickly that you're lovely uh, those of you that uh, want to try and succeed by treading on toes and things again everybody finds out yeah so I realized very quickly who were the good guys who were the bad guys how to get a good re- reputation how to avoid certain reputations um, and fortunately for me, it was quite an easy thing because it was just about exploring my passion. Yeah. And I managed to identify people who perhaps have a bad reputation in the industry. You know, Shmi 150 is a perfect example. There's loads of people that go, oh, I couldn't ever watch his videos. You know, mm-hmm. he, he annoys me so much. Now, that's fine. You know, like you don't have to get on with everybody. Yeah. But that guy is so passionate about his job. He's so passionate about what he's creating and what he's filming. And mm-hmm. he works so hard I can't even begin to tell you. And I, ended, I started identifying people like that and thinking, do you know what? These guys are killing it. Like they yeah. are working seven days a week just to fulfill their passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that that's basically what I needed to do as well. Amazing. So 
Yeah. So for the next few years, I was running around in a very similar way to I was years previously, doing whatever I could in the automotive world. And that involved working for um, motorsport companies. I was working for a workshop in East London where uh, they were looking at building a kind of UK version of uh, Pimp My Ride. Mm -hmm. Um, Which we all love. Those those ones going, oh, guilty pleasure is all I have to say. Guilty pleasures, (laughs) yeah. Um, I ended up doing bits and pieces. There was a company that came along called Classic Grand Touring, um, which later in life was going to be a huge, significant chapter for me. Uh, but at the time, it was being run by a friend of mine called Tom, and Tom needed some event support. So we were doing driving tours around the world in classic cars, uh, driving over to events like Le Mans Classic or Angoulême, or we were doing ice driving in Sweden. Uh, and again, that was just one of my many lists of clients, of people that I was freelancing for, yeah. doing bits and pieces. Um, and it was great. It was absolutely brilliant. I, I had all sorts of different opportunities. I somehow found myself in a radio studio one day to talk about a brand that I was looking after. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy that owned the brand had a um, potty mouth, shall we say. <laughs> so he was terrified that he'd go on the air and he would uh, swear, mm-hmm. which would immediately get him kicked out of the studio. Um so he said, would you go along and talk about the brand? These guys want it to feature on their radio show. And mm-hmm. I did. And that was a little radio show on talk radio called The Motor Show with Andy J. Um, I went on to that on episode one of that show to be a 10-minute PR plug. Mm-hmm. Ended up staying for half an hour. Ended up getting called back for a second week. Mm-hmm. Ended up getting called back for a third week. And before I knew it, I was a sidekick on a radio show. Nice. No planning, no qualifications, no desire no aspiration there I was simply because I'd got to know the right people I'd approached things with a particular way I'd discussed the right things on the radio that made the producer say actually could you stick around Mm. um and there's a lesson in there network talk to people oh god if there's one thing I could tell yeah the advice to give to anybody and I've said this before in in other interviews is be interested Mm. and be interesting you providing you do two of those the two of those things you can't go wrong it needs to be genuine you need to be genuinely interested in your field and if you are you're going to meet genuinely interested people that are also interested in your field yeah um if you're an interesting person that's a bonus i know that's not that's a not necessarily an easy thing to be because it takes a personality trait but if you can provoke if you can prove that you're interested and if you can bring something to the table to show others that you're interested and you can offer them something and you can give them a perspective on something that perhaps they might not have thought about. That's mm. sometimes all it takes. Yeah. You need that one person to go, ah, do you remember that guy, John, that was talking about whatever he was talking about? Or Amber, she had a good idea about something or other. Let's give Amber a call and see if she's got any ideas. That sort of stuff mm. has happened my whole life where completely out of the blue, I still, to this day, I get phone calls and text messages from people that I met years ago yeah. who say, um, you once shared an idea about this and I just wanted to pick your brains because we're doing something similar. Would you like to be involved? Yeah. It still happens. Um, it's what got me to where I am now with Driven. I got a phone call on a Saturday morning whilst furloughed um, from Andy who started Driven mm-hmm. and it was an out of the blue phone call and he said, I've come up with this idea and I want to create a little media brand. I don't really know what it's going to become. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's going to transform into. But would you like to be involved? Mm-hmm. And now I'm running it. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, some time has passed, but yeah, I'm. Yeah, it's a it it's such a difficult thing. You know, it's a difficult thing to try and sort of 
encapsulate in a sentence, but the one thing that I always remind people of, and when people come to me and like, asking for advice and asking for um, some words of wisdom, mm. the thing that I always will remind people of is no qualifications, no experience, mm -hmm. nothing, no prerequisite. There should be, I shouldn't be here <laughs> under any circumstances. I should not be sat in the chair I'm sat in right now. But there is some element, whether it's self-belief, whether it's um, drive, whether it's passion, I don't know. I can't put my finger on what it is. But mm -hmm. for me, there's always been something at the back of my mind that knows that it's worth taking that risk. It's worth walking out of that exam hall. It's worth walking away from that well-paid job. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what's what spurred me on. I mean, I know why all of that exists, and it's a very kind of sad story but it's um it's it's something that we should all kind of learn to embrace a bit more i think yeah and mm. i think that is it it's, that's quite profound really isn't it is everyone will always have that thing that almost creates the way they are mm. and leads people to do certain things that maybe others won't yeah etc it, it becomes a trait almost mm. but that said i think you'll always have an element in you of if it feels right mm. at that point, you just follow it. You follow your intuition. You follow intuition, should I say. Yeah. Um, you follow what feels right to you at that point, even yeah. if it seems daft to other people. Yeah. Um, gut instinct is a, is a big thing. There's mm. so many things that I did in life that I had a gut feeling about and then years later thought, oh, God, I was right. Yeah. You know, that initial yeah. thought that I had about that thing... Uh, turned out to be right yeah and some of it's been really positive and some of it's been really negative yeah um it hasn't always worked you know no. there's been times where i've fallen hard whilst going through this career yeah um and that and sucks it, but it's okay <laughs> completely yeah and yeah my god i mean imagine if it was all plain sailing we'd all be doing it we you were just ticking along going easy 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 it, the world isn't easy it's not i wouldn't want to sit here and say um, yeah, I, I wanted to work in events, so I did. And then I worked for Gumball, and now I run a production company. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> sadly, it takes a long time. <laughs> uh, I remind you all, I'm 35 years old, and I started, I jumped into the water when I was 20. So mm -hmm. to, you know, it takes time. It takes time. And that's okay as well. That's the other thing to remember. It's the other thing that I remember thinking again as that kind of plucky early 20s wanting to just get out there and conquer the world uh, thinking that a year or two years ahead of time is too long it's it's you know I need more time you've got all the time in the world and and the brilliant thing is even at the age I'm at now I've still got all the time in the world to do whatever it is that comes next and yeah. and whatever challenge comes along um I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up so uh, so bringing it back to the very very start <laughs> and then you went through the motions but yeah I mean absolutely it's it is inspiring, to be honest, to hear that because it's nothing is linear. Mm. Nothing should be linear, let's face it. Yeah. And I think that's proof in the pudding that actually if you do what you feel is right for you mm. and, you know, bear in mind there's a lot more opportunities these days as well. There are apprenticeships. There are chances to completely change your career when you're 40, 50, however mm. old. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter mm. if you feel that need to change it. Yeah, there are things you can do and why shouldn't you? Yeah, you know? that's it. No, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Don't be, don't be scared of change, I think, is one of the things that I, I picked up on. 
um, very very early on in life. I mean, there's a there's a big kind of huge sad chapter that I've missed out on in this in this conversation. But I you know I'll sort of briefly mention it because it's it does kind of put perspective on the way that I think, and it's something that I spoke about in, in greater detail on another interview I did with. Um, Harry on the Ignition podcast mm. um, and he kindly invited me on that. Um, at the age of 15, I lost my mum fairly in a fairly short space of time. She became ill and then died. And I grew up with my mum in a, in a single parent household. So whilst, you know, I spoke about my dad at the beginning of the episode, uh, dad was always a weekend dad. And I saw dad every weekend and we'd go and do things together. And, you know, it was my, my childhood was wonderful. It was very, very happy. Um, but at the age of 15, everything went upside down. Everything got completely turned on its head. And the world that I knew and the future that I had envisaged envisaged in my head um, was to completely change. Mm. And it was it was losing a parent, which is a terrible, horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone that's lost a parent will be able to relate to it, and it's a it's a unique feeling. Um, but as a fifteen year old turning sixteen, it it that's a very very crucial part of life. That's a that's a developed developmentive chapter of your life where you're mm. starting to think about the future and starting to think about where you want the world to go and how you want things to pan out. Um, so for me, I, I realised very quickly, both at the point that mum wasn't going to be around for much longer and at the point of her dying, that I could sit and mope and grieve and be sad about it or I could just get on with it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there's nothing wrong with being mopey and grievy. Um, and, and, you know, to this day, as a 35-year-old, I still get sad about it. It's still it's so. still a very sad chapter of my life. But if anything, in a, in a bizarre twist of events, um, it gave me the ability to look at, the, look at the world and look at my life and look at opportunity and look at risk in a completely different way. The firstly being, it gave me the confidence that until, if I ever have children of my own I will not have to face anything mm-hmm. as stressful as traumatic or as difficult as that moment as that period of my life I will never have to worry about it so anything else that comes now is a breeze and I've done it I've been in situations where I've been really stressed and I've kind of been pulling my hair out and going oh this is the worst day ever and then I think and go well is it yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. is this the most transformative upsetting difficult time of my life no can I deal with it yes it's that you're allowed to think it's crappy you're allowed to think it's difficult you're allowed to moan about it and stress about it and flap all of that is fine but realizing that it's not the worst day of your life comes in handy Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing of course is that that moment I realized I just need to get on with this and I need to harness any opportunities I can get um, that again becomes as a as a result of of losing a parent and you going. I just have to get on with it. Life is so short, and I can't predict what's going to happen. I can't control crucially what's going to happen. So therefore, let me do what I can. Let me get involved with what I can. Let me open as many opportunities and doors for myself as I possibly can, because yeah. nobody else is going to change it, and it all might get taken away tomorrow. Yeah, all of it might change tomorrow to the extent where I can't do that anymore, and I'll always think, God, I wish I had. So. Yeah, I, and one of the things I said to Harry on his podcast actually is the ability to realise that you can push yourself is so powerful. We can all sit and listen to other people. In fact, I had this a conversation just this weekend where I mentioned this. 
uh, talking to somebody who's looking to uh, change their career, change their the, the route in which they're going. Mm-hmm. You can have self-belief to get through something or to start something, to start your new company. And you can have 50 of your mates all around you all saying, you've got it. They'll be yeah. patting you on the back. They'll be nudging you on the arm. They're all saying, you, you're going to succeed. You're going to be brilliant at this. That's all great. Mm-hmm. Hearing that from all of the people that you love is great. The minute you hear it from yourself, that is the minute that it matters. Yeah. And that's in a positive frame of mind. And for me, it came from the most negative frame of mind, which is you've lost a parent. You're in an absolute ball of grief. You're crying your eyes out every single night. And every single member of your family is wrapping their arms around you and all your friends are around with you. And they're all saying, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And they mean it. They absolutely mean it. They say it with love. They say it with compassion. And it's brilliant to hear, but it's not until you stand up and you look yourself in the mirror or you lie in bed and you stare at the ceiling and you say to yourself, do you know what? I'm going to be all right. Yeah. I'm going to get through it. That's the one that matters. And sadly, for the vast majority of us, tragically, we don't learn that lesson until later in life. We are not supposed to lose parents or friends or family members until later in life. And by that time... We've done all the challenging things. We've done all, all the risks have come and gone. Yeah, yeah. If we all knew we had that strength when we are a teenager or in our early 20s, my God, we'd all be living very different lives. But we've all got it. This is the thing. We all have that inner strength. We all have the ability to swim or at least try swimming when we fall in the water. Because yeah. if we don't, we'd all drown all the time. We'd all give up on every single dream that we ever had. And the big, most extreme, most difficult scenarios that will ever come forward in your life may be the ones that shape you. Um, And luckily, you know, thankfully for the vast majority of us, we don't get that big, big test until later in life. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of us will get little snippets and hints and clues earlier on in life that we we are incredible creatures Mm -hmm. as humans. We have the ability to adapt and to change and to push forward with things. And that's all I've been doing. Yeah, That's it. There's nothing more complicated than that. It's just realising that I've got the strength to have a go at something else if it all goes wrong. That's it. Very profound. (laughs) Very, very true. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's incredible to think that, and under very incredible, sad circumstances, Mm. but you found that ability to say to yourself, I've got to do this for me. Mm. I've got to do it. I have to. Otherwise, I'm going to be sat here as a, yeah. Yeah. A grieving mess for years to come. Yeah. yeah, people. Some people don't. Some people don't get through it. Some people losing a parent or losing a loved one or a traumatic event in your life can shape you into a very different person mm-hmm. as uh, compared to somebody that could have been. And I think that's incredibly sad. I, I really do. And I, you know, I, I had no foresight into how I was going to develop before that event. I had no real knowledge, even after the event, of how things were going to pan out. But I know. I know deep down that things could have been very different. I could have taken that sequence of events and gone, oh my God, my world can be turned upside down immediately. I must make everything as safe and predictable and controllable as possible. Mm -hmm. And I might still be working in a garden centre. Yeah. And this is it. Control the controllables, as Mm. it were. Yeah. And whilst that may sound daft as a a sentence, Mm. it's just so true. It's true. You control what you can control, which is most things. Yeah. And identify what you can control and enjoy it. Harness it. Yeah. That's yours for the taking. That's the that's that's cheat mode there. Mm-hmm. If you can control it and it might get you somewhere, then good, for goodness sake, 
do it. Exactly. Like, take take the lead. It's your destiny you're in control of. Yeah. Fight that chimp brain inside. Yeah. Climb the tree. Hush the chimp brain. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. If anybody's wondering what I'm on about, by the way, when I say that, mm. there is a book called The Chimp Paradox. I've heard of that. Yeah. It is very, very good. I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it will explain everything I'm mentioning regarding chimp brain um (laughs) but moving on john thank you so much pleasure for sharing that i mean i could sit here for a very long time and just continue to have this chat (laughs) and i think we probably will well luckily we we work in the same office so we can well exactly that i mean so you know anybody else listening if you've got specific questions Mm. for john do you know send them in yeah. you can you tag it tag it on socials you can um pop it through instagram those of you who don't use instagram you can email even mm-hmm. if you visit www.drivenchat.com even yeah you can pop anything through there yeah. um at driven chat for our socials as well we're on twitter instagram youtube even on them all so please do get in touch send us your direct questions <laughs> i don't believe we've been able to specifically chat an interview John before, so this is uh this is no. quite a nice I hope parallel. everyone else gets the same treatment. <laughs> I hope you're gonna also interview Amber and, and Amber, you're Amber. I hope um, you're also gonna interview Amy and Rachel. Oh, I'm going in hard. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. <laughs> um Yeah, but, this has been this has been fun. Sorry if it's been a bit self indulgent, dear listener, but uh yeah, no, Not it's, at all. it's a fun thing to, it's a fun thing? Is it fun? I don't know. I mean, it's a fun It's interesting thing. To, to think back and recap on, on things you've done. It's not easy being a guest, is it? I've, there I've been oh, sat on the other end of the desk yeah. for all this time, asking people the questions. It's, it's um, yeah, it's quite strange when, the, when it's turned around. When we flip it. Yeah. Well, just wait next time. I'm going to have full length question sheet for you. Oh, right. Oh, it's okay. going to be interesting. <laughs> so if you do have any, you know, questions, i.e., what's your favourite cereal? Let me know. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Alternative, if you've got some more automotive-related questions, please do pop them into. <laughs> more than happy to cover. But I suppose the point of today is to find out a bit more about John, mm. but also, you know, that's inspiration. That's pure inspiration right there to reignite passions, learn from, and actually get a full, real insight into how he did it, how he does it, you know? <laughs> and what will he do next? Nobody knows, <laughs> including we me. We don't need to think about that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> but there we have it. So thank you so much, John. It thank you. It has been a pleasure listening. And uh, hopefully we'll do it again. Let's do it again. Why not? Yeah. Thank you, listeners. Bye. Bye-bye. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat Podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven Podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.